I'm late. Kyle said I'm late. Sorry. <laughs> there is a uh, popular children's book that was written, and it was titled All I Really Need to Know. I learned in kindergarten the author was a guy named Robert Fulgham. And out of the thesis behind that book, uh, he also wrote the following poem. Now, he calls it a poem, and this may surprise you. I'm not a huge reader of poetry, uh, but when I think of poems, I always think they have to rhyme. Am I right? Like, if it doesn't rhyme, it's not a poem, but this doesn't uh, rhyme, but he calls it a poem anyway. And the title of it is, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. Here's what he said. He said, most of what I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Uh, wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. This is my favorite one. Flush. Uh, Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Amen. Uh, Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some. And draw and paint and sing and dance. And play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. Uh, When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Now, that's not from the Bible, but obviously, in a world of increasing complexity and stress and overburden, that has tremendous appeal to live that way, even though it doesn't seem realistic for any of us probably in the room. But here's a fair question this morning. What in the world does that poem, that book, have to do uh, with the gospel of Mark? That's a great question. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, take your phones, your tablets, whatever you're using this morning, and turn with me to Mark chapter uh, 13, for a me- or Mark chapter 12, uh, for a message titled Kindergarten Christianity. We're going to look together at the final week of Jesus' life here in Mark chapters 11 through 16. And if you want to follow along in the U version, you can look that up there and you can follow along. The notes are right there in the U version app and you can walk along with us as well. And so let me set up the text for today here in Mark chapter 12. Uh, often in Jesus' life, um, he was questioned and challenged concerning his interpretation of uh, scriptures. And that's exactly what's going on here in Mark chapter 12. Uh, the, in this chapter, he's questioned by the Pharisees about paying taxes. Uh, he's questioned by the Sadducees concerning the resurrection and life in heaven uh, and now. In verses uh, 28 through 34, he's questioned by a scribe about the greatest commandment. And I'll tell you why that was a big question here in just a minute. So we're going to look this morning in chapter 12 at verses 28 down through verse 34. This is the third question. She had a Pharisee and then a Sadducee and now a scribe asked him a question in verses 28 through 34. So let's pick up the text. Mark chapter 12 uh, beginning in verse 28. And then one of the scribes came and having heard him reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And that's an incredible statement. I'll show you why here in just a minute. Uh, Verse 33, uh, or verse 32, the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. 
and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, but after that, no one dared question him. And so um, this is a fascinating uh, exchange between Jesus and this scribe. And so what's happening here is, uh, if you don't understand the law and the complexity of the law, then Jesus' simple answer uh, doesn't even seem as incredible as it is. And so basically what Jesus is asking here, this scribe who's an expert in the law, who knew all the commands, uh, goes to Jesus, and Jesus basically says this, hey, everything, I know the law is complex and there's lots of parts to it, lots of commands, but everything you need to know spiritually, you learned in kindergarten, Uh, I would sum all those things up in these two simple statements that even a kindergartner could understand. Now, for them, that was a radical statement. And the reason that was such a radical idea is because you have to understand uh, it was made against the backdrop of the law. Now, here's my experience. Most of the time, when you talk about the law and you're teaching the Bible, most people think you're referring to the Ten Commandments. They, they think when they think of the law, that's it, and, and Charlton Heston carried it down the mountain, right? You've seen that. It's from the Bible. And so they think that the law is this Ten Commandments, but the law is so much bigger than that. And so let me just give you a quick tutorial about the law so that you can see an appreciation for how simple Jesus' statements is, the response uh, to this question. Uh, basically, the law had three parts to it. There was the moral law, uh, there was the civil law, and there was the ceremonial law. And so when you see them doing all kinds of weird things and rituals in the Old Testament, that was a part of the ceremonial law. Uh, When you see them coming down harsh and saying, hey, if a child disobeys their parents, you can actually stone them to death. That one's still true, by the way. Write that down, all right? That was a part of the civil law. And the third part was the moral law. Now, the ceremonial law and the civil law have become obsolete according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. They were part of the old covenant that is now obsolete or has passed away. And so all those rituals, all those laws, all those that you read in there, that's all passed away. But the moral law of God remains. So in other words, God is still not fine with you having other gods before him. God is still opposed to murder. And so the moral law of God uh, transcends covenant and culture. And so uh, uh, we're now under a covenant of grace. And so some of those things that used to be punishable by death under the civil law, uh, those things can now be forgiven under grace. And so not only were there three parts of the law, was just Ten Commandments, under those three parts, there were over 600 commands 600 commands. Some some writers have uh, put it down to 613 commands. There were so many commands that no one could obey all of them. No one knew all of them except maybe some of the scribes. And so the reality is often what they would find is this. Okay, listen, nobody can obey all 613. You probably don't know most of them. Uh, Nobody can memorize all of that. And so they were constantly asking Uh, Which ones do we have to enforce? Uh, Which ones are we willing to kind of turn our heads away from if someone breaks it? And they were constantly asking, which of all these 613 commands, knowing that no one can obey all of them, which ones are the most important ones? If we can't know all of them, if we certainly can't do all of them, which are the most important ones in all this complexity? And Jesus says, hey, great question. I take all 613 
And I'd boil it down to these, and these are the most important ones. As a matter of fact, the principles in these, all the other ones are contained in there. And so these simple truths that even a kindergartner could understand. So what are the truths that he says in this answer to this scribe here in this text? And so the first thing we see is this. We are commanded to love God supremely. We are commanded to love God uh, supremely. And basically, that looks like two things, according to verses 29 and verse 30. First off, in verse 29, uh, we are to love God for who he is. Now, why is that the starting point? Two reasons. Number one, because that's where the text starts. They give this uh, question here, this scribe, is saying, hey, this is so complex. Could, could you just answer this? Because we're constantly having this debate about which are the big ones here, the ones we've got to enforce. And Jesus said, hey, great question. I'd boil it down to these. And in his first response, what does he say in verse 29? Go back there. And then Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, Jesus has asked this question. And the first response he gives, he gives an answer, uh, he gives a doctrinal statement regarding the character of God. Now, I've been doing this for 18 years. Let Let me tell you what I've learned. Most people, when it comes to teaching, what they want is application. Am I right? Like, help me figure out uh, what to do with these teenagers, right? Help me uh, learn how to navigate uh, this marriage. Help me survive this job. Help me uh, walk through this diagnosis I just got that's crushing. Help me deal with my grief. Help me deal with my anxiety. And what most people want from the pulpit is what I call group counseling. If you just come in every week and give us what we need to make our life better, easier, faster, more efficient, happier, all those things, we'd be totally thrilled. Here's the problem. In all of that desire, what we push off is anything doctrinal. We put it in the category of academic. Now, let me tell you why that's a big deal. Here's why. If you don't know what God is actually like, you can't love him with all your heart. What ends up being is you love the version of God that you've created that meets the needs you have in your life. And in fact, that may not actually be the God of the Bible. And so the first response Jesus says here is, hey, listen, you've got to wrap your minds. If you're going to love God supremely, he gives a doctrinal statement. You better make sure that God that you love is the actual God of the Bible. And so Jesus gives this description here in verse 29. And twice in that verse, he refers to him as Lord. And the word Lord in the original language is the idea of master. And so it implies uh, authority. And so what he's saying is, hey, listen, if you're going to love God with all of your heart, then the first thing, you've got to recognize him uh, as the authority and respond submissively as a result of who he is as opposed to who you want him or need him to be. Now, think about this. If someone were to ask you, hey, I know you're a Christian, or you're, you know, I see you going to church, and so uh, what is it that you love so much about God? Why would you reorient your overcrowded schedule? Why, why would you give away your resources? Why would you take a week of vacation and go on a mission trip? Like, what is it exactly that you love so much about God? Now, think about that. How would you respond to that this morning? All right, you got that in your heads? 
Some of your eyes are closed. I think you're meditating deeply, all right? Uh, let me just uh, spitball here. I'm guessing that nobody's saying, you know what I love about God? I love that he gets to tell me what to do because I personally enjoy being told what I can and cannot do. Am I right? Like, did anyone's mind gravitate towards, I love the authority of God and my submissive response to his authority? We don't think about that part. We like a God who is the big man upstairs. Uh, We like a God who's a heavenly Santa Claus. We like the God who's a comforter in times of sorrow. We like a God who's uh, a lot more as a co-pilot than the owner of the whole airline. I love a bumper sticker I saw several weeks ago. It said, don't call God your co-pilot because you'll crash the car and blame it on him. Am I right? And what happens is we have a tendency to make God in our own image. And how do we do that? Because we become convinced that God happens to dislike all the people we dislike. Uh, We become convinced that God's position on controversial issues just so happens to line up uh, with our position. That God holds the uh, same opinion we hold on subjects. That God would handle subjects the same way uh, situations that we think they should be handled. Uh, We think that God is fine with the sins that we're fine with. And in, in all of those scenarios, what we're doing is making God in our own image. And what happens is you can't love a God who's not the actual God revealed in the scriptures. And so Jesus answers this question from this scribe, and he says, hey, the first thing is this. Let's just make sure that we're on the same page as it is the character of God. And uh, when he describes the character of God in verse 29, he says he is Lord over all, sovereign ruler. And that's the starting point to respond submissively in love. Now, this statement um, is a statement that would uh, be common to them. Uh, they would repeat this over and over in, this, uh, in their culture, uh, this idea of who God was and his character. But for us sometimes, that is not uh, the statement or, or that we often resonate when we think of God. And so he says, first off, you've got to love God for who he is. Yes, God is love. Yes, God is a God of mercy. Yes, God is a God of compassion. Yes, God is a God of grace. But also, God is also holy. And therefore, he doesn't wink at sin. God is also righteous. God is also just in dealing with rebellion and sin and rejection of his son. All those things. That is the God of the Bible that we worship. And so he asks this question, hey, in all these laws, which one is the big one? And Jesus starts off and he says, okay, here's the deal. If you want to love God with all your heart, make sure it's the God revealed in the scriptures, not the one you've created in your own image for your own personal benefit. And so we love God for who he is. And then secondly, he tells this, in loving God supremely, love God for who he is, but also uh, we're to love God with all we are. Look at verse 30. And so verse 30, he says, and... So as a response to who God is, verse 29, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. So in other words, that this is who God is, not who you need him to be. This is who God is, and as a response to that, this is what's required of you, to love God with every ounce of your strength. Now, I want you to raise your hand if you've got your thinking cap on this morning. I know it's the first service, but I just assume you're more spiritual than those late sleepers. Amen? 
And so I'm going to use some non-kindergarten terms despite the title of the message that I want you to understand so you can think biblically about what this looks like, all right? And so um, you will not understand verse 30 without understanding these ideas, and you cannot apply what you do not understand, all right? So here's the first uh, big word. I want us to have here a biblical anthropology. And so anthropology is the study of man, man's origin, uh, culture, systems, the, the makeup of man. So a biblical anthropology is this, is that man is made up of two parts, all right? The inner man and the outer man. One of our memory verses last year, though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. And so that idea that man is made of two parts is called, here's the other big word, a dichotomous view of man. Dichotomous, two parts in the nature of man. If you're still with me, say amen. The other view is called trichotomy. And trichotomy refers to man as three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And the idea behind that is is that uh, the the body is taken care of by medical profession. The soul is uh, taken care of by the uh, pastoral or Christian profession. And then in spirit, sometimes that is humanistic psychology. We would not hold to that. We would hold man as two parts, the inner man and the outer man, and that Christ and his all-sufficient word are sufficient to address every single problem of the inner man. Okay, that's great. I'm really happy for you. What does that mean? Well, here's verse 30. And so in verse 30, when he says, love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, uh, what is that? Uh, quad, quadotomy? Is man four parts? No. These are all interchangeable terms. They're all different words to describe the inner man nature. And so what he's saying here is not, hey, here's four ways to love God. Love him with your heart emotionally. Love him with your mind intellectually. No, no, that's all interchangeable terms. Soul and spirit interchangeable in the Bible. These are all interchangeable for the inner man. And basically what he's saying is this, with all of your inner man, you should respond to loving God with everything that's inside of you. And so when he uh, walks through this, that's basically uh, what he's teaching here. He's saying, verse 29, when you're loving God supremely, make sure that the God you're loving is the actual God of the Bible, not the God in your own image. And then he says, as a response to that, uh, make sure that you're loving him with all you are in the inner man. Now, you know that I like practical, right? Even though I just used some big words. And I, here's the question when I, when I walk through this. I've taught this before. I've studied this before. I understand what's being taught in these verses. But here's what I wrestled with this week. Uh, Here's what I want to know. What does that look like? How do I know if that's actually happening? And so I want us to wrestle with the following questions about this idea. Am I loving God supremely? And one writer said this, he said the most helpful way to think about this, he said, think of the most practical, intimate relationship you have, uh, which would be a husband-wife, a spouse relationship in the covenant of marriage. And he said, so this set of questions uh, would parallel your relationship with God. So so here's some questions to walk through, and I'm going to talk way slower than I normally do, all right? Here's some questions to know. Am I loving God supremely? 
Here's some questions to wrestle with, not inspired, but a helpful list. Uh, number one, is pleasing Jesus the all-consuming passion of my life? Is pleasing Jesus the all-consuming passion of my life? Or is it my job or my kids' sports or some hot, like fill in the blank, right? Is pleasing Jesus the all-consuming passion of my life? Now here's the second question. Do I resist and even oppose anything or anyone that asks me to betray him? Do I resist and even oppose anything or anyone that asks me to betray him? Am I zealous to, with grace, defend his name and honor? Do I enjoy spending time with Jesus and talking to him? Or do I just like learning facts about him? Do I brag on Jesus to others? Do I tell Jesus that I love him? And we could add to that list, but those are some great questions to honestly diagnose. Am I loving God supremely? Is that the motive of my life? And so Jesus says, hey, all these laws, all this complexity, all 613 commands, Listen, uh, this is the starting point. Make sure you understand who God is, verse 29. And then once you recognize who he is, make loving him the entire pursuit of the inner man of your life. And so we are commanded to love him supremely. Uh, The second command Jesus gives is actually the overflow of the first one. So uh, listen, look up here this morning. You will never do the second one apart from this first one. All right? You will never do the second one apart from the first one. And the second command Jesus gives here is this, is we are commanded to love others genuinely. And so the scribe says, hey, there's a lot of laws out there. We can't even keep it straight. We're not even sure which ones to enforce. Jesus says, hey, okay, here's the first deal. Love God supremely. And the second one is love others genuinely. Let me put it to you this way. You cannot progressively be growing in your love for God without the natural overflow be growing in your love for people. Because here's why. If you are loving God, then what's on the heart of God will be put on your heart, and what's on the heart of God is people. Now, can we just be honest this morning? Sometimes the practice or the thought of loving God is so much easier than loving people. But he says, the overflow, like if you're loving God with all your heart, this is what's going to happen. 1 John 4, 20 says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person, this is fantastic, for the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now some of you are thinking, does he mean my literal brother or sister because they're annoying, Amen. But basically the point is to say, if you can't love real people, 
that you actually see and can tangibly show your love, then you're not going to love the Father who you've not seen. And so what does that require? Well, he lists two things here uh, in this passage. Uh, Number one, uh, do for them what you would do for yourself. What does that look like practically? Now, I spent an entire message during Missions Week teaching this truth. I reminded us of it several weeks ago, so I'm just going to run through this real quick, kind of a bullet point because we do learn by repetition. But here's what I want you to understand. Uh, Look at verse 31. Jesus responds, and the second, like it is this, you shall love the neighbor, uh, your neighbor as yourself. And so we learned several weeks ago that when Jesus said that, he's actually quoting the Old Testament. That was the Bible that Jesus had, the Hebrew Bible. And so he's quoting the Old Testament verbatim, and specifically, he's quoting from, paraphrasing from, Leviticus chapter 19. And basically, Leviticus chapter 19 is a command to love your neighbor as yourself by seeking justice on their behalf. Let me just give you the bullet point really quickly from Leviticus 19. What does that look like? Caring for the poor, verse 10. Not stealing, verse 11. Not lying, verse 11. Being fair in business dealings, verse 14. Caring for the deaf, verse 14. Caring for the blind, verse 14. Dealing justly with all people, verse 15. Avoiding slander, uh, verse 16. Not jeopardizing the life of your neighbor, verse 16. Not hating your brother in your heart, verse 17. Uh, Rebuking your neighbor when necessary for his good, verse 17. Uh, Not taking revenge or bearing a grudge against others, verse 18. So when Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself, he basically said, hey, whatever you would want for yourself, you should want that for your neighbor. Whatever you would do for yourself, you should do that for your neighbor. And you should advocate on behalf of those around you who are experiencing injustice. Why? Because that's exactly what you would want for your own life. And so what does that mean when Jesus said the second command? It means do for them what you would do for yourself. But then also what it means is this, is to sacrifice on behalf of them. Now, who's my neighbor biblically? Uh, it's anybody in my circle of influence, but so it certainly extends beyond my actual literal neighbors, but it also includes your actual literal neighbors. And he says you've got to sacrifice on behalf of them as an act of love. Uh, look at verses 32 and verse 33. And so the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You've spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there's no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength. So just, again, with all my inner man. And to love one's neighbor as myself, as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, what does it mean to love someone? Uh, Biblically, love is defined as a willingness to self-sacrifice on someone else's behalf. When someone comes to me and says, hey, we, we've been in this relationship for a long period of time. I, I don't love them anymore. I said, what do you mean by that? I don't have those feelings I used to have and you know, used to all that, that kind of stuff. And I said, listen, that's, that's totally fine. The question is not, do you feel the same way? The question is, are you still willing to self-sacrifice on their behalf in spite of how you feel? That's love. You see, where do you see that illustrated in the Bible? In the life of Jesus. 
John 15, 13 says this, No man has greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, that a man self-sacrifice on his behalf. And so building the concept of love is the idea of self-sacrifice. So in verse 33, uh, he says, hey, this is a greater call than all that we've been used to. What have they been used to? At the end of verse 33, it's more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Basically what he's saying is it's not enough to go through the outward motions of religion. That that biblical love is going to cost you more than outward religious activity. Animal sacrifices may have cost the animal something, but it was not nearly as costly as what it means to love someone, which cost you something. So let, let's get practical. The Bible says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action or truth. So let me just give you some questions again to, to wrestle through. Now I'm going to word them in the phrase of a question. I think I worded them for the screen differently, but here they are. How, how do we know that's happening? And so the first command I get, but how do I know I'm actually doing the second command? Well, here's just four questions I want to wrestle with as this idea of loving your neighbors yourself. Here's four questions. Uh, number one, will I learn my neighbor's name? I'm just going to make a statement here. It's probably hard to love someone practically if you don't even know their name. Are you willing to learn their story? Do you know the people around you, their spiritual condition? Do you know what they've walked through in their life? Do you know their name? There's a study I read several years ago, and it was about a pastor whose life is ministering to people, and they surveyed pastors, and they said, how many of your actual literal neighbors do you know? The stats were appalling. Will I learn my neighbor's name? Do I take an interest in their story? Here's the second question. Will I see my neighbor as one made in the image of God? In other words, do I look at my neighbor, even though they don't behave like me, even though they don't believe like I believe, even though, God forbid, they don't vote like I vote, the greatest sin in America, right? Do I still see them made in the image of God? Listen, can, can, I, just, can I just lean in a little bit here this morning? It's kind of rhetorical. Um, if you don't like your neighbor because they're Democrat and you're Republican or they're Republican and you're Democrat, You've lost your mind. Can I just tell you that in love? Where's that at? That's in the Bible. It's in third hesitations. You've lost your mind. You've reduced the value down to someone who's made the image of God as political party affiliation. You've lost your mind. And if you say, well, I'm committed to that. Listen, that I'm committed to you going to another church. You're welcome. Do I see them as made in the image of God? Well, they leave beer bottles in my yard. They, they, they're loud. like, do I see them made in the image of God? Here's a second question. Will I walk alongside of my neighbor? Will I weep when they re- weep? Will I rejoice when they rejoice? 
I'm convinced that the majority of people, they don't have the margin in their schedule to actually walk with anybody because they're uh, spending their life traveling from place to place, often around their kids' activities. Will I walk alongside of my neighbor, weeping when they weep and rejoicing when they rejoice? Here's the last one. Will I be more concerned about my sin than my neighbor's sin? I love this quote. If reading the Bible causes me to scrutinize others more than myself, I'm doing it wrong. And so based on the fact that Jesus himself summed up the entire 613 commandments of the law into these two statements, I think we can safely conclude that the natural application is this last principle, which is this. Start viewing love as the litmus test. You know what's attractive about the church? It's not the light show we can put on. It's not that we have better environments than King's Island. Like, listen, our hope is not built on skinny jeans and smoke machines, all right? But I'd look good in some skinny jeans. Can I get an amen? I just want to share that. Listen, the attractive thing about the church is love. It is the irresistible, it is the it factor that we have the corner of the market on in the example and commands and teachings and life of Jesus Christ. Now that seems simple enough in light of these commandments, right? But let me just contrast love as the litmus test to what I think are false litmus tests in Bible teaching churches. See if any of these sound familiar as false litmus tests. Let me just give you three. Uh, Number one, only being known for what we're against. That's substituting hating the world for loving the people that actually live in it. Uh, Far too many times we're known for what we're against, not who we're for. You're never going to scold, shame, or picket someone else into the kingdom of God. Let me repeat that. You're never going to scold, shame, or picket anyone else into the kingdom of God. The Bible says this, it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. Let's model that. It's not hard. Learned in kindergarten, right? Here's the second false litmus test. Uh, Number two is knowledge. Uh, This is where the Bible becomes a curriculum to be mastered instead of a mirror to be gazed into. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up or leads to pride, love builds up. And so in all of your knowledge, if it doesn't lead you to greater love for God and greater love for other people, the first two commands, you've missed the whole point. And the end result, according to 1 Corinthians 8, 1, will be a life of pride. And so knowledge is a false litmus test. Here's the third one, uh, activity. Activity. One of the surest ways to be deceived by your own heart is through lots of religious activity. Think about this. The people that Jesus said in Matthew 7, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Were the same people who also said, Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do any mighty works in your name? So activity is a false litmus test. And so look at verse 34, what Jesus said, and we're almost done. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, You're not that far from the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus even mean by that? Like, try harder, try harder. 
What he's saying is, hey, listen, you're, you're, you're right there. You understand that, that it's not about duty, it's about heart devotion. That's what salvation is. You know what happens when you obey these two great commands? Loving God with all your heart supremely and loving others gently. You know what happens? It changes the world. You know how I know that? Because I've read the Bible. The story of redemption. Love changes the world. In the very least, it can change someone else's world. Let me wrap up and tell you this true story. David Youth, who's the pastor at First Baptist Orlando, huge church, thousands of people go there, tells the following true story about how love changed the world of some people around them. He said he began to get deeply convicted about Jesus' command to love your actual neighbors and realized that his church had basically postured themselves to say, the doors are unlocked, we're here if you need us. And while that was true, they would have helped anyone. The only people who heard that message were the people who already showed up. And so their church got serious about showing the love of God practically to the people around them. And one of the people groups they started showing the love of Christ to in practical ways were the women around their church who were actively involved in prostitution. They began to serve these women with the love of Christ. They began to take them meals. They began to take them blankets when it got cold. They began to ask them, can we pray for you? And by God's grace, multiple women in prostitution came to know Jesus as Savior. Now, if you've ever been around someone who's got a rough past, here's what's beautiful and fun. Let's just be honest. They don't know what's appropriate and inappropriate to say in church. Amen? I know a story of a guy who baptized a guy, rough background, guy came off water, cussing a blue streak. Awesome, right? But what they say is honest and from the heart. And so someone asked one of these ladies who came to faith in Christ. They said, were you aware that our church even existed before we started serving you? And she said, of course we were. The building is huge. You can't miss it. And then she said this, and I'm just going to say exactly what she said, not for, not for shock value, but just for honesty of what she said. She said, but until just recently, we would have never dreamed that the people from this church would have ever loved whores like us. Brothers and sisters, let's make sure that no one in the shadow of this church, regardless of their sexual orientation or activity, regardless of their addiction, regardless of their socioeconomic status, ever wonders if the people that go to this church love them. No matter how sophisticated we get in our theology, let's not ever forget what we learned in kindergarten, that the greatest of these is love. Would you bow your heads? If you're here and you don't know Christ, and you wonder, does he love me? In light of where I've been and what I've done, does he love me? Listen, he gave his life for you on the cross. 
When you look at the cross, you never have to wonder if you've ever been deeply loved. The answer is yes. Christ gave his life for you. And all your past, and all your sin, and all your shortcomings, you are loved. And if you're here this morning and no one's ever shared that with you, you never thought God would be interested in you, listen, you can receive the forgiveness of your sins today by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. You don't have to wonder if God loves you. Christ gave his life for you. Would you receive him today for the forgiveness of your sins? You are loved. Would you just pray and say, God, I know that you love me as evidence of what Christ has done for me. And I ask Jesus Christ to forgive me my sins. I surrender my life to him. And from this day forward, I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. Save me. Would you pray that today if you never have? If you're here and you know Jesus Christ, let me just ask you a real simple question. What would it look like practically for you and your family to actually love your neighbor as yourself? What would that look like? Would you start loving people that everybody else has given up on? Would you open up your home to foster kids? Would you start sitting with the person that other people ignore? Would you start learning the names and stories of the real neighbors that live around you? What would it look like for you to love your neighbor as yourself? God, I pray as a response to this message that no one in the shadow of this church would ever wonder if we love them. And that God, may we not be known for what we're against, but who we're for. And we're for people, and we're for Jesus, and we're for grace that changes lives. We're for love. Let us never forget that. Let us be changed because of that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you're here this morning and you prayed to receive Christ or maybe you're ready to take some kind of other spiritual step, baptism, or you want to get connected, uh, let me just encourage you at the end of the service, some of our pastors will be here. We'd love to uh, talk with you about whatever next steps. Maybe you, uh, what does it mean next if I receive Christ today? Maybe you're just here and you're discouraged and you'd be encouraged if someone would pray with you. So some of our pastors will be here would love to do that. If you're a guest, first time, second time, you've been here a hundred times, but we've never met, I'll be right outside the worship center doors. If you've got time today, I'd love to get to know you and your family. Yeah, so as Pastor Brad heads out, uh, please, if you um, are a regular attender, please reserve the next few minutes to just let him interact with some guests or people who have not had a chance to meet him yet. If you are new here, we want to let you know that immediately following this service, during our second service, 
Uh, Pastor Chris is going to be hosting a little bit of a workshop, uh, which is a weird word. I can't think of a better way to call it, uh, but we're just calling it uh, Get Connected. So if you are new and you want to get connected in a few different ways, head up to the cafe that's out, that's up the stairs, uh, and that's straight away. And so we want to invite you to that immediately right now. You can go to that during second service. Also, out in the ministry mall, we are collecting tickets uh, and those types of things for our girls' night and our man night. And so uh, this is in your worship folder. Girls' night is in a couple weeks, a week from this Thursday, and man night is uh, the 28th, I believe it is. And so you can head there uh, to sign up to register. If you leave uh, through that door and kind of go at an angle to the right, there's a room with like three or four iPads set up. You can literally go in there and sign up, grab your ticket right away. So we want to let you know about these things coming up. These are um, some connection events that we're excited for, and we hope that you take advantage of them. Well, let's leave uh, with one final prayer, one final charge as we go from here today. Uh, pray with me. Lord, please place one person in our path this week who doesn't know you and help us to display and show the love of Jesus to them. It's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Have a great Sunday and we'll see you all next week.